This is Workers' Comp Matters, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, the only legal talk network program that focuses entirely on the people and the law in workers' compensation cases. Nationally recognized trial attorney, expert, and author, Alan S. Pierce is a leader committed to making a difference when workers' comp matters. Hello and welcome to the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen to our show today on Workers' Comp Matters. I'm attorney Alan S. Pierce. I'm a lawyer. I have an office in Salem, Massachusetts, known as Alan S. Pierce & Associates, where we focus on representing injured workers and their families in workers' compensation claims, social security disability claims, and related legal matters. There are many types of workers' compensation cases, and what we want to talk about on today's program are workers' compensation cases regarding people who work or have worked in what is known as sick buildings. Um, Here in Massachusetts, uh, we are faced with, for example, uh, the courthouse in Middlesex County, a high-rise courthouse that was built and erected in 1968 and 1970, has a lot of asbestos and a lot of problems, and um, there has been a lot of attention in the news these days about the workers and occupants of that courthouse. Joining me today is an attorney in Newburyport, Massachusetts, who had what may be the first workers' compensation case regarding a sick building. His name is James Sandman. Jim is a trial lawyer with much experience in workers' compensation. He has an office in Newburyport, Massachusetts. He is on the faculty of the Massachusetts School of Law in um, Andover, Massachusetts, And one of his cases that drew national attention that you may remember was a secondhand smoke case involving a flight attendant. Uh, Jim, welcome. Thank you very much for joining us today from your office in Newburyport. Thank you very much, Alan. It's good to be here. Jim, let's start off by defining what is a sick building. Well, I've always viewed a sick building as a building uh, that was constructed uh, in the 1970s as the result of mounting energy costs and the need for um, private and public uh, contractors to erect buildings which would uh, minimize the loss of heat. And one of the ways they did this was securing uh, windows, doorways, uh, in in such ways so that uh, heat loss would be at a minimum. Windows would not open, and... um, the individuals who worked inside would would have to rely on uh, adequate air uh, transfers through the heating and ventilation systems in order to breathe clean and, and fresh uh, air. And that didn't necessarily happen all the time. And, in fact, uh, we, we know from practical experience that heating and ventilation ducts often become uh, dirty, they're not well-kept, well-maintained, they contain uh, dust, uh, other kinds of uh, irritants and contaminants, and as the uh, airflow uh, circulates, it circulates these contaminants, and people uh, are forced to breathe not fresh air, but recirculated stale air, and it contributes to uh, the problems which ultimately we've learned uh, compromise their um, respiratory systems. Okay. Before we get into the symptom complex or the diseases or the illnesses that many of your clients have uh, contracted, 
How would you analogize this to the case I mentioned in the introduction involving the flight attendant and the air that we breathe when we are using uh, air travel? Well, we have we have closed ventilation systems in a, a building. Of course, is stationary, and and we the workers inside have to rely on others to make sure the ventilation systems are clean, well maintained, uh, don't contain any contaminants or pollutants. An, an airplane that, uh, in the case that I was uh, worked a long time on, um, and at a time when uh, smoking was permitted, uh, and, and as we all know from traveling on airplanes and having a smoking section uh, right next to a non-smoking session, uh, section, people were, were breathing recirculated air that wasn't necessarily maintained well, also contained, in addition to uh, tobacco smoke, uh, it contained ozone. And at high at high, altito- uh, high altitudes, the uh, concentration of these uh, irritants uh, made it quite difficult for passengers and, more specifically, flight attendants uh, to function. And what and was the particular illness that uh, affected your flight attendant? Was it a, a, a cancer-related, or was it something else? No, it was it was respiratory. Um, she, she developed a panoply of symptoms which are not uh, dissimilar from those that plague uh, individuals with um, symptoms rising out of a, a sick building. Let's talk about that a bit, because I've had a few cases myself, and I, I have found, when you mentioned public buildings, I've been getting the cases that I get out of generally out of schools, um, mm-hmm. and I am finding clients that have a complex of symptoms that are unique to those exposures. Um, there are various guises or names of these symptoms, and we may want to talk about um, one of those names, multiple chemical sensitivity, what that is, have you seen it, is it something that is compensable under the workers' comp law, and how do you deal with um, those type of cases? First of all, give us an idea of the symptoms that you find clients or potential clients are presenting to you that may fall into that category? The symptoms are classically consistent uh, with, uh, with a variation of uh, individuals who work in various kinds of environments. The symptoms generally will include uh, headache, fatigue, a flu-like condition, uh, red eyes, maybe red hands, coughing, um, sneezing, um, inability to participate in activities like they had previously, shortness of breath. Um, These are quite quite typical. The fatigue uh, specifically and the flu-like symptoms specifically uh, are, are those that one finds almost in every single case. And the variation may be in the amount of intensity and the frequency with which they occur and reoccur, but they're there almost all the time. And interestingly, when you take these individuals out of that workplace um, on weekends and or, and or holidays, uh, their, system, their symptoms abate. And when they return from a vacation, they oftentimes feel so much better that they think that they actually suffered from a flu when in reality they were just merely out of the um, uh, exposing irritant environment. Now, now I have found that um, 
in the few cases that I've had involving this where a client then becomes chemically sensitive, that is, if they are in or around people using hairspray, perfume, cologne, deodorant, they react if they go into public places or stores or um, any place indoors where there are foreign uh, smells or or air, uh, that they become very sick. And this has been traced back to the exposure in the workplace. Um, how does our workers' comp system deal with the disease when it becomes that debilitating that the person cannot even go out in public or be near somebody that is using any type of chemical product? The the law from, from jurisdiction to jurisdiction varies. So you, you don't necessarily have a consistent treatment of these illnesses. But speaking of it generally, you have the acute onset, or excuse me, the acute exposure. Does it have to be an acute exposure, no, or can you well, find a subtle, um, gradual, long-term acute, exposure? You can have an acute exposure of a high dosage of the um, offending agent or toxin, uh, or you can have a chronic low dosage exposure. And what would be the typical um, toxins that would be present in a high dose exposure? Is it a, um, a chemical what, like toluene or TCE or, or uh, yes. diesel fuel? or? Um, a case that comes to mind was uh, a local high school where a, um, a an employee was in a room that had just uh, the floors had just been waxed with a, a high gloss finish and the formaldehyde uh, literally knocked her out. Okay. So how do you prove a case like that? Do you have to go in with experts doing um, air quality studies? Do you rely on material safety data sheets provided to you by the employer? How do you document the nature, extent, and duration of the exposure in addition to what your client tells you? In, in any exposure case, uh, a, a, a chemically specific case as well as a, a multiple chemical uh, case, I always look to the, the material safety data sheets to see what kinds of, of um, illnesses or symptomatology can be uh, provoked by the exposure to that particular chemical. Uh, I, and, and I wrote a letter to a physician yesterday in which that very same thing had occurred, that we looked at the MSD sheets uh, and we looked at the, the symptoms and they matched up uh, beautifully so as to just essentially lead the doctor to the inevitable conclusion that there was and remains a causal relationship between that particular chemical and the individual's illness disease process. Okay, and let's get, let's get into the nature of illness or disease process. We started to talk a little bit about MCS or multiple chemical sensitivity. Mm -hmm. And as you are well aware, Massachusetts in a case maybe two or three years ago, uh, through the, um, high courts determined that multiple chemical sensitivity is not a valid medical diagnosis that fits our definition of personal injury, which is obviously the requirement to bring a, a worker's comp case. How do you deal with a client who presents with what is commonly and classically known as symptoms of MCS or multiple chemical sensitivity and try to recover benefits for that client when that named disease is not recognized as compensable? Well, it, it, what, what's even more difficult is trying a case 
uh, when the case you're referring to, Costello's case, uh, comes down and, he, and you're suddenly faced with a change in the law and how to, and how to uh, try and maximize whatever the law allows you left um, to use. But um, MCS, because of its troublesome definition and acceptance within the medical community, as a viable, recognized illness, has has presented for some time to be a very troublesome um, uh, disease process. There are many physicians who don't recognize multiple chemical sensitivity uh, as a disease at all, Uh, and they look at it rather uh, uh, akin to uh, an emotional or psychological impairment. Um, so when, when, when we deal with a, a case in which the employee presents with these classical symptoms uh, in a workers' comp setting, you're not necessarily sure whether you can get past the physician who won't even accept that as an illness. And uh, as a practitioner, you obviously must be versed in the so-called Daubert uh, standard of determining uh, or when there's a challenge to the scientific or medical reliability of the evidence you want to put forward. Absolutely. So are there other diagnoses that are recognizable and compensable for somebody who has been exposed to chemicals or other toxins in the workplace or mold or uh, other irritants that produce an asthma condition or a chemically sensitive condition? Are there other diagnoses that pass muster under Daubert? Well, I, I... I think uh, Daubert and in the way the Costello case uh, uh, applied Daubert, you can get around the cognitive dysfunctional issues um, that can um, uh, an, an expert could opine arose out of a, um, a an, an injury to the cognitive system, and, and, and therefore it would not fall within the. Um, with, within the Costello treatment, um, the MCS treatment, and allow someone's um, alleged impairments to be recognized as a compensable injury. Okay. Do you find an increase in diagnoses of asthma or asthmatic bronchitis or rhinitis, which is, I guess, inflammation of the tissues of the uh, nasal passage and nose, to be compensable conditions where multiple chemical sensitivity may not be? Clearly, clearly occupational asthma has been and I think will continue to be recognized as a compensable injury. Um, certain forms of respiratory illnesses will similarly be compensated. I think if you can address the symptoms and the nature of the offending agents in such a way as to take it out of a multiple chemical um, framework, you, there may be some uh, opportunity to increase your success level. But it, 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 it's, it's a very, very touchy subject because of the, the split within the medical community as to the validity of the illness in general. Now, when you're faced with uh, a a new client coming in complaining about feeling ill or being disabled due to what he or she perceives to be exposures in the workplace, do you commonly find there are other co-workers or occupants of the building that are similarly 
uh, afflicted, and I would assume that makes your case uh, easier well, when there are. We know we know that a long time ago, uh, in the mines, uh, people would take down uh, take small birds into the mines in the event that there was any kind of a gas leakage. And once the bird would tip over and die, then everybody would scramble out. Uh, a canary, uh, a canary um, uh, approach. And, and what you have in, an, in a sick building uh, case is there will be someone who becomes ill before anyone else does. And that gives rise to the possibility that there is something wrong with the physicals the physical plant or the structure. And how, how responsive and helpful do you find governmental agencies, whether it be uh, federal occupational safety and health administration or state-level uh, occupational uh, agencies, to be in helping make your case or providing you data upon which you can build a claim of um, building-related illness? In, in recent times, I think that with the... Um, with the education available to employers, it, it appears, and I'm not saying this is across the board, but it appears that employers have become, uh, one, more responsible, but two, also more alert that if there is a claim, that by the time someone comes in from the state to do uh, indoor testing of, uh, of air quality, that some of the offending agents may actually have been cleaned up and or removed, so that it's hard to duplicate the air quality uh, when there is a formal testing. Now, sometimes you can um, you can envision a situation where OSHA may be called in, and they come in much more quickly. But I haven't yet had this. I haven't had the experience where the air quality has been that tainted um, that a place has been shut down. So Although how, I know that to be true. Yeah. So how do you uh, successfully present a case or win a case when you don't have access to any air quality data indicating levels above a certain standard, yet you have the classic symptoms mm-hmm. of a um, environmental – And Or even let's say you have a cluster of coworkers and you have classic mm-hmm. symptoms. Can you prove your case in the absence of um, air quality studies that are within normal range? Increasingly, it's, it's more difficult, and the law has not been friendly to um, injured employees in this regard. I, I'm much more reluctant to take a, um, a, a case because of the difficulty in proving uh, not only the illness, but the entitlement to, to workers' compensation benefits. Now, one of the areas that I think we've had more experience with because of the latency nature of the disease is asbestos-related diseases, mesothelioma and asbestosis and Mm -hmm. conditions like that. Uh, Tell us a little bit of your experience in dealing with these problems in the workplace. My experience is more limited here, although I grew up in a a coal mining community in western Pennsylvania where uh, those kinds of illnesses were, were really quite commonplace. Um, the area I live in now is is not so much um, um, exposed to um, those kind of uh, offensive agents, but I have had some ex- uh, experience with borreliosis uh, comes to mind uh, from from grinding and um, of course people working 
in brake repair shops will develop uh, respiratory dysfunction. And I, I think you can draw uh, distinctions much more easily between these illnesses, occupational asthma, and the, uh, and the so-called MCS symptomatology. Jim, we're going to take a short break and come back uh, with more from attorney Jim Sandman uh, after this break. You can listen to Workers' Comp Matters anytime on your computer or download the show to listen later. We invite you to join as a member to Legal Talk Network so you can get updates on our upcoming Internet radio shows. A video settlement documentary can be the most powerful and persuasive way to bring about a speedy settlement in your client's case. The Boston Media Group has a staff of television professionals with 20 years' experience writing and producing compelling stories just like the ones you've seen on 60 Minutes or Dateline. We put a human face on the lawsuit with compelling interviews, dramatizations, and visual presentations of the fact. Think of it as a video opening argument that will compel the attorneys on the other side to settle. Call us for a consult at 800-317-5221. That's 800-317-5221. Or check out our website at bostonmediagroup.com. Want to know more about Legal Talk Network host and attorney Alan S. Pierce? He's nationally known for his expertise in workers' comp and the law. Appointed by two governors to the State Workers' Compensation Advisory Council on the editorial board of the Journal of Workers' Compensation, leading lawyers across the country with a commitment beyond passion. Find out more about Attorney Pierce on the Legal Talk Network website under About Us. At the Legal Talk Network, we're pleased to tell you that it is our privilege to announce a series of programs with the legendary F. Lee Bailey, available soon for listening exclusively here on the Legal Talk Network. You'll hear F. Lee Bailey talk about the role of investigation and his brilliant defense strategy in cases such as the Boston Strangler, Dr. Sam Shepard, Patty Hearst, Captain Ernest Medina, and of course, O.J. Simpson. You'll also hear F. Lee Bailey talk about several lesser-known trials, personal anecdotes, and his thoughts about trial lawyers as the gatekeepers of the truth in the American justice system. It's called Conversations with F. Lee Bailey, the essence of investigation. You won't want to miss this. Welcome back to the Legal Talk Network and Workers' Comp Matters. On this show, we cover timely topics and interesting issues all related to workers' compensation. Today, we're talking about cases involving workers in sick buildings. My guest is Jim Sandman, attorney from Newburyport, Massachusetts, who has extensive experience in cases such as these. Jim, one of our features on workers' comp matters is something we call case of the day. And I'm going to uh, talk to you about a case that just came down from the great sky state of Montana and um, ask you what you think the court did. Um, It is the case of... Van Vliet versus the Montana Association of Counties. In this case, Jim, Sean Van Vliet was a deputy for the Phillips County Sheriff's Department, ironically in Great Falls, Montana. Sean fell to his death from a hotel balcony while attending a conference 
of the Montana Narcotics Officers Association. Sean's widow filed a claim for surviving spouse benefits. Sean had become intoxicated initially at a hospitality room sponsored by the Officers Association where business was discussed. The hospitality room closed at midnight, and Sean and other officers continued drinking and played drinking games in one of the hotel rooms. He later fell from a balcony, and his blood alcohol was .203. The evidence revealed that Sean's employer was aware of the drinking, that it would be part of the conference, and, in fact, had supplied much of the liquor. Evidence also revealed that Sean had already become intoxicated when the hospitality room closed. The issue that was presented to the Supreme Court of Montana was Sean's widow, Mindy, entitled to workers' compensation benefits. What do you think, Jim? Well, we know that um, in situations where there's a a widow's claim, the the widow, of course, has done nothing wrong. So certain benefits would would flow uh, to her. Now, whether or not she can claim due to his negligence... uh, uh, voluntarily um, uh, consumed alcohol is probably what the court was looking at, and, and we have a situation where he was at the premises um, uh, in a in a scenario benefiting his employer. His employer actually participated in the activity, which uh, arguably led to his death. That is the providing of alcohol knowing that alcohol was going to be there and knowing the alcohol was going to be there after hours. My, my sense is that, that, that in most jurisdictions, the court would have awarded benefits uh, to, the, to the widow. Uh, we know also that in, in situations where if he had committed suicide, which doesn't seem to be the case here, but uh, had he done that, it still would not have deprived her of going forward and advancing a claim and um, and receiving benefits. Jim, you nailed it. Um, although the Workers' Compensation Commission in Montana initially denied Mindy's claim, uh, the case went all the way to the Montana Supreme Court, which reversed and awarded benefits. The court reasoned that under Montana law, intoxication occurring in a work-related setting with the employer involvement, as in this case, uh, would not be a defense. The issue, however, focused on whether the additional drinking after the closing of the hospitality suite was a sufficient deviation from employment to take the case outside of the workers' comp system. The court concluded that Sean did not sufficiently deviate from the course and scope of his employment. He likely was intoxicated at the time the hospitality room closed. Mindy and her child, Vanessa, were, in my view, properly awarded benefits. Jim, I want to thank you so much for joining us today on Workers' Comp Matters. Do you have any closing thoughts on the area of law that you specialize in, not only workers' comp, but the subspecialty of representing people who are exposed to substances in the workplace and sick buildings or otherwise? I think it's, it gives me great joy to be able to uh, represent individuals who otherwise would, would be um, at a loss to com- to adequately and intellectually compete with um, insurers' counsel, um, that it, it gives me the opportunity to level a playing field, which, some, which sometimes is, is not so level. And it's been my entire practice uh, from, the, from the time I've started in the early 1970s to represent individuals um, 
who had suffered losses such as the ones we've talked about. And I will continue to do this and do it with great, with great joy. And I appreciate the opportunity to, uh, to chat with you and, uh, and look forward to hearing more of your shows uh, um, as they're presented. Thank you, Alan. Well, thank you, Jim. And uh, I've enjoyed uh, working with you, knowing you as a colleague and seeing your work. You are always uh, well-prepared. Uh, you are a passionate advocate for your clients, and um, you are a pleasure to observe in the courtroom. Um, we want to thank everyone for listening today. There are some resources you may want to know about if you want more information on people who work in sick buildings and cases involving sick buildings. The Harvard School of Public Health has a website, www.hsph, that's Harvard School of Public Health, hsph.harvard.edu. There is also Consumer Voice USA at www.consumervoiceusa, all one word, .com. The Journal of Workers' Compensation, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services at www.hhs.gov. And the Workers' Injury Law and Advocacy Group, that's located at www.wilg.org. Thanks again for listening to Workers' Comp Matters. Go out and make a difference that matters. Thanks for listening to Workers' Comp Matters today on the Legal Talk Network, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, where we try to make a difference in workers' comp legal cases for people injured at work. Be sure to listen to other Workers' Comp Matters shows on the Legal Talk Network, your only choice for legal talk. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.